But I think tonight, during our time together, I've pulled together some uh, beautiful content from God's Word, from the Scriptures, and I think we'll all be encouraged uh, by what God's Word says on uh, biblical manhood. I've titled the message, as you can see, Toward a Biblical Man. And I've titled it that way because we are all on uh, the, the great journey of sanctification, and we are all on uh, the spectrum, so to speak, and different parts of it as it relates to biblical manhood and, and where we are in these things. So my goal and hope is that no matter where you are in your sanctification, in your walk with Christ, that tonight's message and the biblical text that we work through will enable you to be more sanctified and more like Christ, but also to embrace biblical manhood as it has been designed in uh, Scripture. So in his book, Reenchanting Humanity, Owen Strand, he writes these shocking words. There may be no more controversial statement today than this. There are men and there are women. And he wrote those words a few years back, so you could even say that that is even more shocking and even more heightened today. In recent decades, the United States, as you know, has been a breeding ground of disillusionment as it relates to masculinity and femininity. In fact, Chris Mueller, in his book, Let the Men Be Men, he sort of identifies recent trends in our culture that have caused for uh, discouragement and confusion as it relates to biblical manhood. He discusses how the women's liberation movement has attempted to eradicate gender distinction. The LGBTQ plus movement has sought to destroy male and female categories by replacing them with uh, several labels, uh, bisexual, transgender, non-binary, and things like that. Such attacks on male and female distinctions has inevitably led to the breakdown of the family in our culture, including the biblical definition of marriage that continues to be viciously attacked, and consequently, I should say, the family unit has suffered greatly. Gender roles and assignments and things like sex changes and preferred pronouns are being pushed as the cultural norms. We see that happening everywhere, a sort of indoctrination by the culture. In fact, in 2018, 20 different nations around the world affirmed the right to change sex, literally for no reason at all, except that because a man wants to be a woman and claims to be a woman, he can now have a sex change. Again, that was 2018. At least 20 different nations affirmed that right. And this isn't merely a problem for adults like us here tonight, uh, but this type of agenda is even being pushed on uh, the younger generation. In fact, in a 2015 book entitled The Gender Fairy, and this is a children's book, by the way, it says the following, quote, Only you know whether you are a boy or a girl. No one can tell you, end quote. And you could, as well as me, add to the list of absurdities and 
ridiculousness that is being spewed across our culture in several spheres, by the way. Maybe you hear uh, these types of things from coworkers. Maybe you hear these types of things from family members or the communities in which you live and the communities in which you work. Of course, we hear this in politics and on social media, and it's advertised all over in corporations and businesses. Unfortunately, while the world and the culture is imploding before our eyes as it relates to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, to some degree the same can be said about the church. Not necessarily in terms of physicality, although that could be an issue, but what it means for a man and a woman to embrace their biblical roles. That's really the controversy you see in the church. In 2001, and many of you will remember this book, but in 2001, a book entitled Wild at Heart was written by John Eldridge, and it exploded onto the scene. How many of you guys remember that book, or have you at least heard something about it? Okay, only a few of you now. It was a New York Times bestseller. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies and was massively influential in the early 2000s. And according to the most recent Amazon reviews that I read, it is still highly influential. Uh, But the premise of this book is that every man has a battle to fight, he has an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. Uh, Basically, Eldridge's premise is that men are wild at heart and they need to go out into the wilderness to find their inner man. And it's only when they do that that they discover who they really are. And it's interesting, sort of the framework for Uh, his book comes out of his belief that Adam and Eve were created outside of the Garden of Eden and then they were placed inside the garden. And the issue is that man needs to get back outside of the garden. That's his premise about getting into the wilderness and finding your inner man. Of course, there's no reason, biblically speaking, to believe that that was the situation with Adam and Eve, but so it goes in his book. So between the culture's godless view of men and women and the professing Christian world and its unbiblical view of the roles of men and women, much confusion exists. But as professing Christians here tonight, we must always ask, what does the Bible say? On our time together this evening, we are going to define biblical manhood, and we will do so by examining from the scriptures three distinctives of a biblical man. Men, if if we want to be biblical men, and if we claim Christ, we must adhere to what the Bible says about manhood. So if we want to do that, we have to embrace and champion these three distinctives. Now before we get into the first one, let me say, brothers, there there is a whole wide range of scriptures and texts and passages that we could delve into for week after week after week. So I've really tried to condense it down to three main distinctives to at least help us give a bird's eye view of what God expects of a biblical man. So let's look at these three distinctives together. The first one is that a biblical man is a converted man. A biblical man is a converted man. 
Now, to be sure, a biblical man is more than just simply being converted, but a biblical man is not less than that reality. In order to be a biblical man, you have to be a converted man. Uh, This means that you have had to experience true conversion. You have to have been born again. You have to have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and have confessed and repented of your own sins and your own transgressions and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And this salvation is not of works or merit, but simply by faith in Christ. If that is the cry and desire of your heart, if you have believed upon him as your Savior and your Lord, your journey on biblical manhood has begun. He paid for your sins on the cross. He granted you his righteousness. You are justified and declared not guilty because God declared him guilty on the cross. If you don't know Christ here tonight, if you don't know him salvifically, maybe you know of him intellectually. If you don't know of him salvifically, my prayer is that you would come to him. That you would drink of the water that he offers. That you would eat of the food that he offers. The bread that he offers you. That you would come to him and find forgiveness of sins in him alone. And he will no wise cast you out. He will put his spirit upon you and he will make you a new creation, a new man. So to be a biblical man, you have to be a converted man. It's absolutely essential. It's non-negotiable. But secondly, a biblical man is a commissioned man. A biblical man is a commissioned man. If you have your copy of God's word, I know you're familiar with this. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. I know you guys have been in a several-month study of Genesis. As Vikram has been walking you through verse by verse of this great book, we actually just finished studying all 50 chapters in the Omega Sunday School class. We went at a little faster pace than Vikram. We did a chapter a week. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Because what we'll find in the book of Genesis is that Genesis describes a commissioned man. You could call this a designed man or even the Genesis man. In fact, Genesis provides several key insights about the biblical man. The first insight is that man is created in the image of God. Man is created in the image of God. Of course, there is so much that we could say about this theological reality. But man is created in God's image. This really means that man is a rational being, that he has an intellect, a mind, a will, a capacity to understand, a conscience. You understand this. This also means that man is relational, that he has the ability to have a relationship with God and other people. And the image of God also means that man is a ruling being. It it means that man is meant to rule over the earth. He's meant to lead. He's meant to oversee. He's meant to subdue. 
He's meant to take dominion, and he is meant to lead. And this is the point that I want to focus on for our time here over the next few minutes, that man created in the image of God is meant to rule, and he's meant to lead. Now, I want you to see this unfold in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 26, and just watch the language as God describes mankind ruling over the creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, and notice what God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and so, or and it was so. So the text is clear and I know you were able to Capture it with me. After God created the world, he set mankind, both Adam and Eve, in the midst of it, and he gave them the task of reigning and ruling over the lower creation. From the beginning, and don't miss this, from the beginning, Adam and Eve were tasked with being Lord over creation, lowercase l. Not sovereign over creation like God, but Lord lowercase l, over creation. They were God's vice regents. In other words, God created and appointed man to rule over the world in his creation. Men, the same is true for us today. This is the creation mandate. It is a timeless principle. And because Adam was created first... He was designed to be head and the leader in this creation mandate. And by the way, when we get to Genesis chapter 3, what do we come across? The fall of man. But that chapter, that incident, that scene did not nullify the creation mandate for man to rule and lead. In fact, both Genesis 5 and Genesis 9 affirm the Genesis 1 realities that man is to subdue the earth and lead. Genesis 9, 1 through 7 is a critical passage on that. I challenge you to review that this week. So here's what I want you to see. Let's, let's tie this up. So man's leadership and rule in God's creation that is established in Genesis with Adam's headship in view This continues to be a reoccurring theme or motif all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament as we'll see at the end of our time this evening. 
Now I want you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 2, and I want to show you how this continues in the Old Testament, this idea of man ruling and man reigning and man leading. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. So if you were to examine all of the Old Testament this week and dive headlong into a study of all of the key leaders and the key figures in the Old Testament narrative, in almost every situation, you would find that men are leading the charge. If you were to examine all of the kings in the Old Testament, all of the priests in the Old Testament, all of the prophets in the Old Testament, and all of the scribes, almost in every case, you have men leading. Now, this doesn't mean that every man is called to an official office or an official position of leadership. I mean, we understand that, right? I mean, you can read through the biblical narrative, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of characters all throughout Scripture that are not in leadership official capacity. But here's what I want you to see. Regardless of position, God has still designed man to lead. Even the men in the Old Testament who serve in official leadership, even they themselves understand the reality of being a commissioned man, a man that leads. Look at 1 Kings chapter 2. You'll notice here beginning in verse 1, the narrator describes King David's time coming to an end, which means he's passing his reign and rule to who? To Solomon. Notice what David says to Solomon in verse 2. I am going the way of all the earth, and here it is, watch what he says. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. It's kind of a wild statement, right? <laughs> we, we would say it this way, look, be a man. That's basically what David is saying. Now, it's critical, how does he define being a man? Here it comes, verse 3. David says, here's how you are to be a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses. By the way, this same type of charge is given to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. The strong, biblical, leading man, the charge for that man is to be grounded and rooted in the Word of God. That is his commission. His commission is to subdue the earth, to lead, to reign and rule as a lowercase l Lord, and to do so by what is written in God's Word. I mean, David just flat out charges Solomon. He just says, look, here's how you are to be a man. And it is to know God's word and to walk in his ways. This same charge, if you dig a little deeper into this passage, this same charge is not only just given to Solomon, but it's meant for subsequent men, for subsequent leaders. Men, we are designed to lead. 
Men are designed to lead in accordance with God's word. And David assures Solomon that the proper way to be a biblical man is to know and understand God's word. Men, that's what it means to be created in the image of God. Well, there's a second insight that Genesis provides, and it is that man is comprised of body and soul. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Man is comprised of body and soul. We won't spend a lot of time here. I trust that you understand Genesis 2, 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, living being. So in Genesis 1, God establishes that man was created male and female. In Genesis 2, we get further revelation about creation. And we are told here that God created Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. This is is where we get that theological reality that man is a two-part being. He's both body and soul. He's both body and soul. Man is material, body, he has a body, genetic distinctions, but he also has a soul, the immaterial part. But men, my point in citing Genesis 2-7 is to demonstrate that God is sovereign over the gender that he graciously gives at the moment of conception. That's true for every one of us here. God has created us to be men. He graciously, at the moment of conception, brings life into this world, and he determines whether that life is male or female. Now, God directly acted in the case of Adam and Eve. He directly created them. You know the story. But in his meticulous design of humanity, he now providentially uses the normal process of human procreation to create life, more image bearers. To rule his world. And by the way, I don't know if you've thought about this before, but both body and soul, that composition comprises every person in this room and it is everlasting. Let me put it this way at the moment of conception, God determined whether you are male or female, and your life and your death cannot change that reality. In fact, in the resurrection, both for those who will spend eternity in heaven and for those who spend eternity in hell, your gender remains the same. Unchanged. So man is created by God, both body and soul. There's another insight that we get from Genesis. That man is called to cultivate and keep. Man is called to to cultivate and keep. Look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now if you are one that underlines in your Bible or you highlight or you circle, those two words in Genesis 2.15, cultivate and keep are absolutely critical for biblical manhood. 
This verse tells us that God purposely placed man in Eden for a specific purpose. And that purpose is to supervise and oversee what he had just created. Keep in mind, Genesis 2.15 is before sin entered the world. So in God's good creation, he placed man in Eden to oversee everything that he had just perfectly designed. This is a God-given assignment, not punishment. This is God-ordained blessedness, not cursedness. If you think about this reality, it, it really is quite stunning. Prior to Genesis 1, in eternity past, the created world did not exist. But in a moment's time, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he creates man to keep and cultivate it. Now let's examine these two words that I had you underline. First, the word cultivate. And I want you to track with me here because this is just as applicable for us as it was to Adam. The word cultivate. It means to work, to till the soil, to labor. It can even mean to service, to give service to one another. It can even be used uh, to worship. This word is also linked to a Hebrew word uh, that means service and was often used to describe the Levites as they worked in the tabernacle and in the temple. So what does God mean when he tells Adam to cultivate the garden? Don't miss this. God is telling Adam that he must dig and plant and prune and fertilize and work with his hands and work with his mind and his will and his volition. He is to give up his energy, his passion, and his efforts to be devoted to working and cultivating in the garden. By God's good design, man was created to work, and this is really where I want to get. And this is still the mandate even after sin. And if you look to the new heaven and the new earth and passages that speak about the new heaven and new earth, you will find that we will work and serve there. And notice the second word that I had you underline, keep. It means to take care of, to guard, protect, to watch, to exercise care. This word was often used to protect property and flocks and people. It was also used to describe priests carrying out God's instructions and taking care of the tabernacle. So not only was Adam to work in the Garden of Eden, he was to guard it and protect it. So men, here's where the application comes. The theolo- that's the theology of Genesis and the biblical man. But here's the application for us. In every sphere of life, every sphere of life, whether that is where you work, whether it's your family, uh, your friends, your, your, your brothers in Christ, your, your church, your community, your interactions with 
people at work or people that you pass in the community. We are to work and we are to cultivate as hard as we can and labor in those spheres. What what does that mean? That means that you work hard at work. Why? Because God has designed you with the capacity to do so. And you're one step ahead of the culture, which some of them do work hard by God's common grace. But you are one step ahead because you understand and know that your work is for a purpose. And what is that purpose? It's to glorify our Heavenly Father. You see, the creation mandate that was given to Adam to work and to keep applies directly to us in every sphere of influence that we have. Our time, our energy, our efforts, our passions are to be invested in cultivating and working in the spheres that God has given us. If you look around this room, guys, you're going to come across dozens of different work situations, dozens of different friends, family situations, communities, etc., God has placed you there. If you are in Christ, he has called you into his kingdom and then he has placed you at a specific point in a specific place in your life to work hard. Why? Because that's how you have been designed to work and to be in this world. Likewise, we are to keep and to guard and protect those people whom we are connected with. We are the protectors of the people and spheres that we are associated with. An excellent book. Uh, You've got to read this. It's by Richard Phillips. It's called The Masculine Mandate. The Masculine Mandate. Listen to what he says. He says, God does not desire for men to stand by idly and allow harm or permit wickedness to exert itself. Rather, We are called to keep others safe within all the covenant relationships we enter. In our families, our presence is to make our wives and children feel secure and at ease. At church, we are to stand for truth and godliness against the encroachment of worldliness worldliness and error. In society, we are to take our places as men who stand up against evil and who defend the nation from threat of danger. I mean, I think Richard Phillips, he, 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 just, he just gets it perfectly. He describes the Genesis mandate, the creation mandate for us to work hard and to cultivate the spheres that we are in. Let's look at it from the opposite. Let me put it this way. What does the Bible say about laziness? So we're... We've seen the biblical mandate, the creation mandate in Genesis to work hard and to labor and to keep and protect. What does the Bible say about the opposite of that? What does the Bible say about laziness? We don't have to go too far in Proverbs (laughs) to really track down what God's view of laziness is. But let's just look at a few examples here. What do the Proverbs say about laziness? Proverbs 10, 4 through 5 says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. 
Proverbs 12, 27. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. Proverbs 19, 15. Laziness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And in that context, that type of language, the soul of the diligent is made fat, that's a good thing. Now there are other Proverbs that speak about laziness. You think of, uh, I love the, the contrast between the ant and the sluggard. It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament, Proverbs in particular. You know, the sluggard will find any excuse not to do anything, right? Uh, the lion out in the street. <laughs> There's a lion roaming out in the street. I can't work. Any excuse to not work. But, but do you see the contrast here? The biblical man working hard as God has designed us and the, the, the lazy man in the book of Proverbs, shameful. A biblical man is one that understands that he has been commissioned to work hard, to cultivate, to keep, and to guard. Well, there's a third distinctive that we need to examine together that a biblical man is a churchman the biblical man is a churchman now I want to break down this distinctive into two categories and I I think this will be helpful for us as we examine the New Testament let's firstly consider the churchman, and his commitment. If you are going to be a biblical man in the church age, which is the age in which we live, you must firstly be committed. The biblical man is committed to the life of a biblical local church. This is a non-negotiable aspect of the Christian life. Now, let me be clear. Countryside is not a perfect church, but Countryside is a biblical church. You must either be committed here at Countryside or another biblical church. That's the New Testament pattern. Christians are always associated, in the New Testament, Christians are always associated with a local church. Always. A biblical local church. That's my challenge for you. If it isn't here, it needs to be somewhere. Be plugged into a biblical church. But once you have found a biblical church, what what do you do there? Christ has given three requirements in the New Testament. Don't miss these. The first requirement that Christ gives is that you must attend corporate worship. In order to be a biblical man, you must be committed to Sunday corporate 
worship. The New Testament requires that you attend corporate worship in a biblical local church on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day. You can see this pattern unfold in the New Testament. At a commemoration for the resurrection of Christ, which was on the first day of the week, a Sunday, the early church began to meet week after week after week corporately on Sundays. You see this beginning in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 2, and this continues all the way to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Just time frame wise, the New Testament extends from about AD 30 to AD 96. And from AD 30 onward to AD 96, Christians were meeting on the first day of the week. That's what a biblical man does. And if you attach that, to the Genesis mandate, the creation mandate, men ought to be leading the charge and being in corporate worship. That's what we're called to do. There you go. It's okay. We can get kind of hype about that. Guys, we're called to lead that way. And what encourages me is that many of you and I understand we've got a lot of people on campus and a lot of people moving around and a lot of moving parts going on. But a majority of you I see every Sunday. Praise God, you're leading the charge. That's what biblical men do. We get to church on Sunday. But there's a second requirement. Is that the New Testament church and members of churches are required by Christ to serve. Man, if you want to be a biblical man, you have to be here on Sundays. And secondly, you have to serve somewhere in the local church. Now, by God's good design through his Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, he has given you spiritual gifts. You either have a speaking gift or a serving gift or a combination. But you have a gift. So you need to use it in the local church for the edification of the other men around your table. You are required to use that gift for the edification of God's people and for the glory of God. If you don't know what your gift is, talk to one of your leaders here. Have them help you discover and determine your gifting, your giftedness. If you aren't sure, you can also just try and serve in areas that you like and gravitate towards. The Lord will use that in his providence to direct you exactly where you need to serve. But men, we have to serve. I mean, it it can be anything up here. It can be leading and overseeing a ministry. It, It could be up here serving and helping with landscaping. Whatever it is, even if it isn't an official leadership role, you can still lead. I mean, you you can go spread mulch and you can lead. And work as hard as you possibly can. And that brings as much honor and glory as Pastor Tom up here preaching in front of everybody. He just happens to be ridiculously gifted at doing that. There's a third requirement. And it is fellowship. Fellowship. Another way of defining that Greek word for fellowship is sharing a common life. Sharing a common life. The New Testament requires that you share a common life with other believers. Uh, This simply means that you get involved with each other's lives. 
one author writing about how to train future men. So the book's premise is talking about how to train boys into becoming biblical men. Watch what he says. Boys should be able to see masculine leadership throughout the life of the church. From the pulpit to the session of elders to the choir, boys should be able to see men they respect. They should not see what is too often the case, missing men or silent men just along for the ride. When men go to church to simply sit in the back, they are teaching their boys to do exactly the same thing, if that. Man, we have to, we have to take the lead. We've been designed to do that. Let's take the lead in being in corporate worship. Let's take the lead in serving in this church. And let's take the lead on sharing and investing in one another's lives. That's what our Lord, the most biblical man that has ever existed, (laughs) that's what he requires of us. So not only to be a churchman do you have to have commitment, that that is key. But secondly, you have to have character. You have to have character. Character. As with the Old Testament and the ubiquitous nature of male leadership, the same is true of New Testament and church leadership. The New Testament explicitly limits church leadership to males only. Women can and are effective in the church. They have God-given gifts and they have a specific design to help them flourish in the local church. And just for the record, the ladies are in another room talking about things of this like as it relates to women for those who are listening online later on. That's why I'm not making many comments to the ladies. It's only men in here. But a theology of New Testament leadership demonstrates that men do the leading. Okay, track with me here. This is true of Jesus' disciples, including the 12 and including the 70 that were sent out in Luke 10. This is true of the apostles and their oversight of the local church in Acts chapter 6. This is true of elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The New Testament pattern is that men do the leading in the church. Again, that goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's how we have been designed in God's good created order. But listen, not only are men called to lead, we are also called to have the godliest of character. And in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul lays out the character qualifications for those who will serve in official ministry... That's what the context is. But the principles and the character qualifications in this passage are to be true of every biblical man. A lot of times, a lot of times people in church leadership, 
will throw, or people that aren't in church leadership rather, will throw out 1 Timothy 3 and throw out Titus 1 and say that those character qualifications don't necessarily matter to me because I'm not in church leadership. That couldn't be further from the truth. Every man is called to lead in some capacity and leaders always possess godliness, Christ-likeness, and holiness. I mean, think about it this way. There's not a double standard. It isn't, well, Pastor Tom is required to be godly, but since I'm not a pastor in this church, I'm not required to be that godly. That, that doesn't, you, will, you will not find chapter and verse that says anything like that. That's silliness. All men are required to be godly. I mean, when Peter writes to those persecuted Christians... First Peter chapter 1, he quotes from Leviticus and says, You be holy because I am holy. Re- referring to God. God says, I am holy, you be holy. Peter says, look, Christians, that's you. Be holy. So if you want to be a biblical churchman, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that, that, that needs to be the norm of review in your Bible reading. Because here you'll find five qualities that all of us need to aspire. Let's go through those qualities as we bring our time to a close. The first character quality that you need to aspire to is moral excellence. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let's just look at this real quick. And this is just a flyover. I blame Vikram. It's, it's Vikram's fault. This is just a flyover. So the biblical churchman is described in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Five qualities that all of us need to aspire. The the first is moral excellence. Look at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy 3. He is to be an overseer, then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Uh, The biblical man is the man that grows in sanctification. He pursues biblical virtues. He's fighting and killing sin. He's living above approach. He is sexually pure. He's calm. He's gentle. He's wise. He doesn't give himself over to strong drink. He doesn't love money. The biblical man is the man that aspires for moral excellence. Men, that has to be us. As I've been preparing for this message and working through these passages, man, I've been cut to the heart, cut to the quick. I've been faced with my own life, matching it up to what Scripture says about moral excellence, and I want to continue to improve and get to that standard. That has to be our goal. Secondly, we must aspire for managing excellence. Managing excellence. This is verse 5 and 6. The man must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control. If a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? He must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Now understand the context here. 
It's talking about the husband managing his house and his children and those things, and that's great. But there's a larger principle. Hear me on this. As Paul writes to Timothy, he's setting the stage for the biblical man as it relates to managing your life. What, What does that mean? Your life must be in order, both in public and in private. The same man that you are on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings is the same man that you are when you aren't on campus. You have to be devoted to the local church. You have to be devoted to working hard at the job that God has given you for this time. You must be committed and organized to reading God's Word and to praying and meditating. Uh, This is what it means to manage your life. It it needs to have organization and structure that, that, that follows after what God has deemed to be good and right in His his word. Your, your life shouldn't be spiraling out of control if you're a biblical man. That, that, that's all this principle is saying. Thirdly, you must have testimonial excellence. Verse 7, he, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Uh, This doesn't mean that you are looking for the praise of men or the assessment of men. This simply means that to be a biblical man, you have good relations with those who do not know Christ and those who do not know Christ know of your integrity. That's the point here. Those who are not in the church, those who are not in Christ's kingdom, those who are not saved... The biblical man shows integrity towards those people and they recognize and understand that you are a man of integrity. That's what a biblical man is. Fourthly, turn over to Titus. Just a couple pages over. Turn over to Titus 1. But fourthly, you must aspire for theological excellence. Theological excellence. Titus 1.9, referring to church leaders, you must be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine. And we'll pick up with that verse here in just a minute. The biblical man is invested in being theological and biblically excellent. What does that mean? That means that you are to know and understand the Word of God. And again, like I said at the beginning of the message, we're all on different spectrums as it relates to what we know about God's Word. But the point is, the biblical man always wants to progress in his knowledge and understanding and living out of it. Lastly, The biblical man must aspire to shepherding excellence. Shepherding excellence. This is the last part of Titus 1.9. That he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Men, we must be able to defend the scripture. We must be able to thwart off wolves false teachers, 
false teaching. Really, as it relates to our study tonight, we ought to be able to thwart off the doctrines of the world, the doctrines of the culture that are trying to impede on and disintegrate the idea of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. We need to shepherd one another in such a way where we hold fast to these biblical truths about what it is to be a man. And we need to thwart off the wolves and the false teachings that try and disrupt it. I mean, this just goes back to the Genesis 2 creation mandate that we are to work hard to cultivate, but also to keep and protect. Men, I've said it a couple times already, and I understand that we are all in different places on our journey toward a biblical man. But what matters, listen, what matters is our progress, our advancement, and to put it in more biblical terms, our sanctification. But as the culture continues to vomit ungodly and unbiblical ideas, and as they implode and eat themselves alive, and as new, trendy, supposed biblical teachings on manhood continue to circulate in the book and social media world, we have to hold fast to what Scripture says, and we need to let the Scripture be our authority and guide as it relates to being biblical men. And may we look to the perfect man, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the supreme example of what it looks like to be a true, authentic, biblical man. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your precious word. We're always amazed that when we open it, that our hearts burn within us as we examine the scriptures. As your spirit illumines our mind and teaches us your truth. We're grateful for Jesus Christ and the fact that he is the perfect man. He's the God man. And where we have all failed, he succeeded. He kept your law perfectly, something we would never be able to do. But through his life, death, and resurrection, you have made us new creations in Christ. You have taken us from darkness to light. You have brought us from wretched men to be biblical men. May you continue to guide us, strengthen us, to cultivate our mind and heart, to honor you with how we live. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.